Oh, hey, my name's Puno, and I'm the founder of I Love Creatives, and this is Girl Boss Radio. So before I started podcasting on Girl Boss Radio, I interviewed Mara Hoffman at LCD in downtown LA with a super small group of people. And this was actually after she decided to pivot and completely changed the direction of Mara Hoffman, the brand. She was doing it in two ways. Aesthetically, she went from tribal bikinis, which I own, to a more minimalist, but still wild, elegant, natural vibe. And then she also pivoted her entire design and manufacturing process towards sustainability. Hoo-wee, that is a lot. First of all, pivoting your brand image is scary especially when that brand image still works. The people love it. Five stars, the buyers are still ordering it. But what if you've changed? And that's what happened to Mara. She evolved. She wasn't even wearing her own clothes anymore. And more importantly, she felt that her industry, the fashion industry, was going completely against her values. So she was at a crossroads. Do you leave? or do you stay and be the change agent? So if you've never seen or heard Mara Hoffman, let me just visualize her for you. Mara Hoffman is a walking, breathing earth mother. Can we cue some earth mother sounds? Definitely birds, leaves shuffling. Yes, there we go, okay. So we have video proof of this because when I was interviewing her, she literally was surrounded by leaves. One of them she named Bobby Quesadilla. That's great. <laughs> I was like, yes. I think I'm just gonna name one of my plants in my office, Bobby Quesadilla. You, <laughs> that is your name now. She's the kind of person that would enter a room and you would just see leaves part. And then like a vine would go around her ankle and then there's all these sun rays peeking out from her hair. And then a hummingbird just flies toward her and then stops and kisses her on the cheek. Like what the fuck? She truly has the presence of an earth goddess. So you can imagine her conundrum of being in the fashion industry. Eee! The conversation we had years ago was so special and I really just felt like the girl boss community could resonate with her because I was just sitting there like a little puppy with my chin on my hands, just like, oh, what else, Mara? Please tell me more wisdom. She's just done so much introspective work on herself, on her business, and more importantly, on her output, whether it's good or bad. Mara has been practicing being present for years. And in this conversation, I wanted to really go deeper into what that means and how does Mara actually use that practically in business? Because anyone can just say you're more present and then yeah, more sustainable, but Mara actually embraces being present and then uses it as a way to help her evolve. So if you're at a crossroad or you're doubling down on your values or you're just looking for ideas and ways to be more sustainable, this interview is for you. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so sustainability. I think that for those who don't work in fashion or aren't like into the day-to-day, -day, how sustainable is fashion right now? It's a tough one because I think that the short answer is it's not. 
it's an industry that people are paying more attention to their impact, whether that be based on true intentionality and feeling the pressure and the impetus for immense change and how necessary it is, or whether it be based on marketing or a trend or something to keep a brand relevant. I do feel that now more than ever, people that are in the industry, it's almost like extraordinarily outdated to not be having that conversation or to have some efforts in place. But of course, there are still many, many companies who have yet mm. to begin their journey or don't feel the uh, the importance for it. So there is still a lot of negative impact that our industry is putting out there. Mm-hmm. So if we could get into some of the nitty gritty of things, like how have you seen sustainability not work in certain supply chain points, like raw materials, for example? Yeah, I mean, supply chain is like, kind of the the it of it you know it's like exactly from these raw materials how are these coming to be are we using you know Mm petroleum-based materials are we using materials that require an immense amount of pesticides and chemicals to grow and then beyond that it's of course overproduction So I think that that is an enormous issue within our industry is this insatiable desire for more and more and more when such an immense amount of what's actually being produced doesn't even make it onto human bodies. Um, So it's the overproduction. It's the lack of social labor standards. So the the human-centric side of it is as important as the environmental Mm -hmm. side, if not more. I mean, when the... It's always comes down to it. If the humans are sick, the planet is sick. Like this is just what it is. If the humans aren't cared for, Mm. the planet is not cared for. The humans have to be cared for first and foremost. And then with healthy humans comes a path to a healthier planet. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the big thing of it. Living wages, the standards in which people are are working in and then depleting Mm -hmm. finite resources. So what, what we need to be able to keep up with these levels of production so those are, I would say, the big jumbo ones that are are really what it you know what we're dealing with as a, as a whole. Yeah, and we all got here as well because of a little bit of everybody. It's everybody's demand for new, and it's also you know wanting to make money too. For you, what happened? Why did you decide to make? this decision to change or to really kind of embrace this full circle? So for those of you that don't know, we, we've we been around for a significant amount of time, in my world, a long time, 21 years. The company marked 21 years in this past May. Mm-hmm. So I started the company right out of college. I went to Parsons and I studied fashion design there. I received a BFA and... I won't go too long into this, but maybe your audience is at, at some crossroads right now. I feel like it yeah. it might mean something. So I was definitely at crossroads upon graduation. I I felt 
kind of like I've always felt within this is a bit of an outsider or not a hundred percent understanding like where I fit into it and where my sense of creativity and my desire to be a change maker and to live a little bit more from the artist's path than a different path. Mm -hmm. I graduated and was sort of like, where do I fit? What am I now? And let, just to give you a little bit of a reference to, I graduated, this is good, I'm, I'm old guys. I mean, I'm 44. So I graduated from college in 99. And at that time, my classmates were going and looking for jobs at like Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, Isaac Mizrahi. Right. Um, those types of, of businesses were really like the place to go. And you'd you'd go and you'd get a job and you'd, you know, you'd draw tops or you'd draw bottoms or you'd do fabric and you'd mm -hmm. be in your small part of it. And I just didn't connect. I, I didn't think I was going to be a, a fashion designer and what that meant. So at the time, I was making mm. all of my own clothes. I was making clothes for my friends who were in the business, um, who were on the other side of it. They were stylists, mostly, and working in like the celebrity side of things, which was also a big kind of birthing time of, of a new version of celebrity yes. around this time. It was... Um, like the, the 90s. The, the late 90s. It was the beginning <laughs> yeah. of Britney Spears. Britney was born mm. then into our you know, ethos and Christina Aguilera and J-Lo and, yes. and Beyonce a little bit later, Khalees. Like this was sort of this birth of the female pop star in this different way. And so my friends at the time were styling these women and doing their music, music videos, music mm, videos were a wow. thing. Yeah. Um, and so they would come to me to make custom one of a kind pieces. And so my technique in, the, in these beginning years for a long time, everything I did was one of a kind and handmade. So I would hand dye, um, I would batik, use a technique called batik, which is like a wax, paint on wax and relief process with dyes. I would do hand beading before I even understood a lot of upcycling without kind of the, the words for it or the consciousness around it. I was just like taking old things and turning them into new things. Mm. And I did them all out of my little teeny studio apartment on 28th and Lex in New York City above a restaurant called Curry in a Hurry, which was delicious. Mm. And they put up with a lot of my nonsense, like dyes that I would do in my bathtub, dripping down their back walls of the restaurant and oh my coming gosh. out, knocking on the door going, our walls are purple. And then I'd be like, I'm so sorry. They're like, can you at I'm least sorry. use turmeric? Yes, turmeric. <laughs> but I loved that time. It was just special when I think about that time because it really, it belonged to me. It belonged mm. to like this like individual small moment of just being in discovery mm -hmm. without what would later become an immense amount of responsibility when you do end up running a business. So when you were at Parsons, did they teach you everything that you needed to learn to be able to do all of those projects in your bathroom? <laughs> I was definitely into finding out more. So I, I did spend a summer at Central St. Martin's in London learning about constructive textiles. It was this course there that I learned about batik. I learned more about hands-on weaving, um, definitely more of the hands-on work, which was always mm -hmm. a draw for me. But Parsons, I have nothing but great things to say about it. I think the biggest thing it taught was discipline and this work ethic of how to continue to show up and focus and get the job done. And, you know, I think now we're in this whole sort of revisiting of 
the grind yeah. and how we what we think about it now Welcome after to girl the pandemic. Boss. <laughs> right? And like this idea and but I grew up in this time where it was like you couldn't work hard enough. Yeah. And I, I'm a product of that. And mm-hmm. I'm just now, like I said, at 44, sort of, and as I'm dealing with my own business, getting through a year this past year and then thinking, well, how do we reform or do we come back into person? And what is a new evolved company look like based on a very different perspective of grind and very different perspective of how much do we give to our work and how mm-hmm. much do we give to ourselves and how do we separate those things? Mm-hmm. So the first 20 years of my career were inseparable. I gave everything mm-hmm. um, to my work. And luckily for me, I loved it. So I could give it uh, definitely were times where I was burnt to pieces and couldn't even muster energy to like another day, but somehow I would summon it and, and keep going. What do you think the nuanced difference is between, you know, just you're learning so much. You're learning about just techniques in general. You're learning about your own personality and your own taste. Um, and all of that is just really heavy work that you have to do, which to me is more like learning frustrations versus burnout, where Mm -hmm. burnout in my mind. Mm -hmm. That's different. Definitely. Like the student experience is like its own sort of, it's its own fire. Mm -hmm. It's different. I think it's for me, like where I found the big difference between burnout and like learning is when you're put in an impossible situation where you can't complete something. Like the expectations for you are so out of whack that it's, and I'm, th- I'm talking about like toxic work environments um, mm-hmm. where you have to just, you have to work this way, but then the end result actually doesn't benefit the company or yourself. No. And I think that's where the burnout happens because it's like you're, you feel psycho (laughs) it's just mental yeah i think we were all duped honestly with this like perspective of um like the measures of success and how they were structured and i think about this and i talk about this a lot that they were structured through like a male perspective success in this way of what does it mean to be financially successful to run a business to do these to have power as a woman mm. in this world, you were already sort of set up to a structure that was never built for you. Mm-hmm. It was built for you to try and like mold yourself to, but it wasn't built really for the benefit of, I mean, maybe it was built for the benefit in some perspective of men, but it wasn't built for the benefit of the planet, for humanity, for anyone. It was built to just keep taking. Mm-hmm. and taking and taking from yourself and from your resources. And then ultimately, if you're running a business from employees. And so I think a incredible part about this past year has been really reckoning that, like coming to a reckoning of, did I build this idea of success? And what does that still even look like? Mm-hmm. And is it meaning that I work till I die? And that that's my pride that I worked nonstop. Like, is that what we hold up at the end of our, like our, you know, on your last moment, are you thinking, oh, I'm so glad I never stopped working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Right. I do not think so. Yeah. 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 But at the same time, you know, when you were talking about 
graduating and you were working so hard that did contribute to where you are today i guess like if for sure are you thinking that back then you could have done it differently and had somewhat of the same results honestly like i don't spend a lot of time sort of in that space of imagination yeah because it's ultimately it just like takes me out of where i am right now and i'm it's become definitely more of a practice for me to be aware of being present. I know as corny as it might sound or cliched, it's just like it does me no service to sit in regret or to sit in rethinking things unless I, you know, am exploring hindsight and saying, okay, well, yes, maybe if I had tweaked that and that's a great learning lesson for going forward. But at this point to think, well, if I'd redone my whole life, what would it look like? Who who cares? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I am right here and I am incredibly grateful for where I am. And then, you know, it gives me some perspective for perhaps somebody who's starting out. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot as well, because I'm trying to understand, like, how did I get to where I am right now, we're pretty happy and I'm, I feel very self-aware. I have a lot of self-agency. I'm not perfect, but I definitely feel confident. And I was trying to figure out like, what were the things that I was doing back then that I wasn't doing today? And I think a lot of it is actually not being at present and overgeneralizing so many like thoughts and decisions, like writing off corporations or nine to fives completely because I thought that that was the reason why I was burnt out, but realizing actually, no, it's all these little moments, these little decisions, these certain people that um, made all of that happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think like in terms of anyone right now who's going through college or is working and you're just getting into the workforce, I feel like that is the one thing you could do is to like really dig deeper into the the supply chain if you will of mm-hmm. of what's going on um versus yeah kind of just oversimplifying everything i agree with you and i feel that now also the difference is when i was coming into this and coming of you know becoming who i was going to become it was never sort of based on the concept of purpose mm-hmm. it was a little bit more like egoic it was just like do what you like do what you like but now as we i think about kids now or people in their 20s or really anybody younger and what they're inheriting Mm -hmm. i think my my son included who's 10 years old and it's um a very different landscape to approach and figure out where you belong in it and i think that there's this new level of responsibility that it's just it has to be part of your decision making. And it's such a huge question and, mm-hmm. and, and like a daunting one of the big one of what is my purpose? Like, oh my God. It's it's rare to like really fully know that, I think, especially rare to know that at a young age. Yeah. But to figure out kind of where you are most passionate about, like figuring mm-hmm. out either what breaks your heart the most or what makes your heart sing the most. Like one mm-hmm. of those two things should be the the leader in helping you find purpose. Because at this point, if we're not contributing or we're not figuring out what part of the boulder we're pushing, it feels a little bit checked out. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a great way to put it. It does feel a little checked out. What is the difference between 
finding purpose for you as a person and the purpose that you're actually talking about? I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in the collective and sort of feel that like putting the attention on the self and that, you know, that healing and that self-discovery and understanding and care is sort of almost too selfish or that like you're, you shouldn't spend that, that it all has to be for this like collective movement. So I think about this a lot of like truly contributing is understanding that you know, you have to, that that analogy, you have to put your own oxygen mask on in the plane before you can put it on to somebody else. Yeah. Like, you got to be healthy to help the sick. You've got to be in strength to help the weak. You, you can't be, you know, as sick as the sickest person and be of service to them. So I think that there's this idea of understanding the importance of the best thing that I can do is make sure that I am absolutely the healthiest version of myself, both mentally and physically. And from that point, everything else extends out. So it takes a little bit to sort of release some weird, again, duped idea that that that's like a self-centered existence because it is really the beginning of service Mm. for everything around you is to get yourself right. Mm -hmm. And so that took time to get to that because I think it's really easy to dive into like the collective repair without repairing yourself. Yeah. But then you're a bunch of broken people sort of putting Band-Aids all over a broken system as opposed Mm -hmm. to having some repaired human beings rebuilding Mm -hmm. through new structures that are based on um, like health and sustainability on all aspects of that word. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. When I started my business, I did not know anything about accounting or finance. Mm-mm. And I'm not alone. Today we have Demona, the host of Make a Living podcast, official dating coach, advice columnist on LA Times, She's also on the Drew Barrymore show as a love expert. She's a slashy. She does it all. When you were starting out, did you look at like a P&L and your expenses or any of that stuff in the beginning? Or when did you start doing that? Nah, girl. Um, I did not. I had no systems. I had no tracking. I had no accountability. And I was just like, I want this goal to happen. But... I wasn't really able to plan for the future or to build upon the success that I had had until I got more granular about those metrics. Yeah, same. Like, oh, technology is amazing. Having tools that make it easy for me to track where I am and whether I'm going to make my quarterly goal or not, and that can help me invoice more quickly because I mean, I literally would spend like hours, hours of my time with invoicing, trying to make invoices on Word docs and track that. And I swear to you with FreshBooks, I can do it in 90 seconds or less. Yeah. And yes, it's just every time that I sit down and bill and I'm like, wait, why didn't I do this earlier? It's so darn easy. (laughs) When would you tell someone that they should use something like FreshBooks? Yesterday. You should use it yesterday. (laughs) If you can go back in time and yeah, get in a time machine. And you know, the other 
thing that's really been helpful for me with clients is having the integrations with your bank account so that they can also pay the invoice right there for anything that's an ongoing project where I'm billing on say a monthly basis you can set it up so that it automatically invoices your client at mm -hmm. those set intervals and then yeah. it will also send reminders if the invoice hasn't been paid if you set that up accordingly I mean that just like gets you out of a really awkward conversation Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, it's not me. It's the fresh books. <laughs> Is there anything you'd say to that creative girl that's like, I'm not a money person. I'll never be a money person. <laughs> I'm not a money person either, but I want to make money and need to make money for my family. So you don't have to be a money person. And that's right. why tools like FreshBooks exist. They're for the people who are not money people because you still have to be able to invoice, to track your time, to bill, to collect money. You still have to be able to run your business as a business. And it doesn't matter if you are a finance girl, <laughs> you can still do it with the right tools at your disposal. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash girlboss and enter girlboss in the how did you hear about us section. And then you can get time back to build the business you love. What have you changed about yourself in terms of self-care or like, what are you doing now that is really like just making you glow the way Mark Hoffman glows? <laughs> okay. So I know we're off subject a bit, but I think this is really important stuff yeah. to share. And also, I just also really want to reiterate that this took so much time to cultivate. Like. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you feel so far from this, don't worry. It took a lifetime, honestly. And I hope that just even sharing a little bit, this could bring it a little bit closer to you too, so that you don't have to spend a lifetime to get to it. Right. Um, but I think a lot about this idea around, you know, like how self-love is sort of sold to everyone and especially to women. And it's this idea of love yourself. The first thing you've got to do is you got to love yourself, mm -hmm. right? And so, okay, that's, that's a really tall order. Let's just, like, let's call it what it is. To truly, like, get in there and be so compassionate and so loving and so forgiving and so holding all your dark parts and just at every turn telling it you love it. I mean, could you imagine, like, the amount of strength and grace and commitment to love that that takes? But this idea of it is sold very freely and loosely, and it's embroidered onto, you know, pillows, and you can get a coffee mug. You know, you uh, go to a yoga class, and they tell you just self-love, man. Right. Mm -hmm. But especially as women, from, like, your very entry into society, all your cues and all your messages are really ultimately serving you the opposite. They're starting you out on comparison and these aspects of beauty and shame and all of these other things are handed to you. Mm -hmm. They are handed to you. I just want you to know, like you come into this, it's a tough package, mm -hmm. one that you can overcome, but you're handed all these things. And then you get to a certain point, you get to your teens or your 20s and they say, just love yourself. And you're like, well, what about all of this and this and and I it, but am I thin enough but am I this and am I this but I oh right so you have all of these packages that were handed to you from the moment you could 
realize the world. Probably mm. from like three years old when you first fell in love with a Disney princess. And you were like, I'm not her. The beginning. Whatever it was. Whatever, you know. Like, um, where do I get red hair and a tail? <laughs> I, I mean. Yeah. And then you're just supposed to shift into this thing and like be able to so gracefully love all of your parts. Mm. And so I first want to just like say it's a tough order. And it has to start in this really sort of smaller, like uncovering way. And I know that this this sounds so it can sound maybe a little cringy I don't know but one of my like entryways into it was having a conversation like an internal conversation with myself but the way I talk to myself I speak to my kid myself as a kid and this is a new it's a practice that I do I speak to little Mara (laughs) <laughs> and I have conversations. I have a nickname for her. I call her Marita, little Mara. And I imagine I would be having a conversation with the sweetest, like my own little girl. I have mm. a son who I have sweet conversations with, but sometimes those my cool. It's not as sweet as this. But <laughs> it's a conversation with how I imagine I would treat the sweetest little child of mine. Like mm. how, my mother used to always say, Mara, treat yourself the way you would treat your own child. And then you think about that, you're like, oh my God, I'm treating myself so far from the way I would treat my own child. Would I ever say internally the things I say to myself, to my child? Oh my God, no. So it started with an internal dialogue of being incredibly aware of my voice Mm -hmm. and the words I choose to speak. It was a beginning. It was an entry in to a new relationship with myself. And what it did was hold total contrast then to when I was doing the opposite. And mm-hmm. when I was saying things that were a untrue and really kind of hurtful to myself, it held it in this like comparative contrast. So it felt even more like, oh my gosh, I gave me more awareness of it. Can you give an example of of something that you would say and then what you would tell yourself? Yeah, they're sweet. They're sweet little, you know, it almost sounds uh, to say them, but they're just sweet little like reminders they're as simple as i love you marita i love you i love you um hello sweetheart like they're names of affection like i find i call upon like sweetheart names of affection Mm. and literally when you start doing it it feels so awkward because you're like ew what excuse me like what am i (laughs) i get it i get like the weirdness of of it but there's something So, and it works for me, and I don't know if it'll work for everyone, but there's something so soothing about it. And then eventually, after a little bit of time, I began to like accept that voice and trust it and hear it as like kind of this mothering experience Mm. that I was able to do for myself. And I Mm. think that that's the big shift when you sort of stop relying on your external things to give you comfort and start cultivating these aspects of Mm self-comforting whether it's through you know how you would imagine the perfect mothered experience for yourself like you Mm -hmm. have to start creating that on your own and not waiting for it to be delivered to you because it rarely ever is and so in that shift over of having a place to go when I needed to be held or needed to be loved or talked off a ledge or whatever it is, I have developed a voice and a resource for that. That's Mm -hmm. helped me an enormous amount in my life, but it wasn't easy to get to and you don't trust it at first. 
I I did the same thing, but I did it from a, a different lens. I had just left my job and then felt like now that I'm going freelance, now that I'm going to try to start my own small business, I need to be my own boss. And one big thing for me was not checking in enough. And so I would do this thing every day. And I w- it was so cringy for me too. I was like, oh my God. And also it's like boring, same question, but I just, I was so paranoid of being burnt out again and just being emotionally like just not good. So I just did it and it really does help to just force yourself to check in with yourself. Like you cannot. What did yours look like? What does yours look like? What do you do? Mine were um, three questions. I just asked, hey, how's it going? Are you happy right now? Just in general. And is there anything frustrating you? Like what's something that we can do about that today? And is there anything that we might need to like get rid of? That's awesome. Just those three questions every day. (laughs) And then when you would answer yourself back or find those, would you sort of make amendments and shift whatever those things were that were possibly bothering you? Yeah, I think the main thing was that I was so frustrated with this like annual check-in that I didn't give myself 365 chances to iterate on my life. And I'm have I have such a bad memory. Like I cannot remember I mean, things. I wouldn't have remembered. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just like, you know, how am I gonna remember all the little things, the little moments, the little opportunities I have to change um what's going on? Like I can't unless I, I check in it. daily. I like that system. Yeah. But this is the thing. I think that What could change people is if we're taught these things really young, like Mm -hmm. we're taught how to cultivate these inner comfort systems and check-ins and how to actually take care of ourselves. Yeah. And I I feel you on the problem with love yourself is it's just a statement. It's not an exploration. It's not something that you can take and then dive into yourself like you just have to accept it that's really hokey to me because that's like mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like what is that really right with mean? no exploration or no kind of excavation which yeah. it takes you gotta yeah. get to it you gotta know what you're carrying you know yeah like why do you love yourself that might be even a better question than just love yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. who Big knows stuff but all <laughs> to say that it all definitely it all definitely connects itself to us looking for this better outcome for our planet and yeah. for our people. But it starts on this individual path. And that is a big change. I will circle back to your the original thing. It's like, what, what are the changes? And I can do all this stuff and have a sustainable fashion brand and, you know, like great it's all i'm proud of what we do and have deep love for it but it also is not a perfect system by any means and mm-hmm. do i feel like i'm like really able to like completely reverse climate change right now through making even more new clothes which we ultimately are doing even though our efforts are definitely with the least amount of harm centered and doing incredible work from it, it's still a conflicty place to be. Like fashion and sustainability, mm-hmm. whatever, are, are a conflicted match. Did you ever want to leave it completely? Sure. I mean, I, I think every couple of years I'm like, well, time to go. <laughs> um, but then I get drawn back in because 
I love my company. I love working with a team so much. Mm. I live for the people I'm working with. And I, I like having sort of a clarified purpose. It sort of sometimes takes the pressure off of what, you know, what is my purpose? Because it, I'm in work mode. I'm in sort of a habitual place with it for better or for worse. But once you're like in a habitual routine, you know where to show up to every day and you know what your role is and you know how to contribute. And I like that, um, you know, humans like patterns. We like the consistency. And I love creating. And I know mm. that that is also a big part of my calling is to create beauty. And I think a lot about the work that we do as yes it, it is a manufacturing business but it also is a feelings business and I think about that you know I really believe the world looks the way that you feel you know and I, maybe we talked about this a little bit but when you wake up and and you're feeling shitty you know and you're like oh god and you go out you can see the shittiness a lot clearer you can see the hurt and the sadness and the other mm parts out there but when you wake up and you're feeling good and you're feeling at peace you can go out and you can see that in the world it's easier to see that like you mm -hmm. see what you are feeling and so to really understand that your feelings have so much to do with your experience on the you know this run as being a human being you start to not take that mm -hmm. ability to change feelings for granted and i think about when we make a beautiful dress or we make something and someone puts that piece on and they feel something different than what they were feeling before. They feel a sense of strength or their own femininity or sensuality or ambition, whatever it is that is their feeling that makes them. And if I can help mm -hmm. create that through an article of clothing, then I'm ultimately contributing to the rest of, you know, their experiences. So I think about clothing as these feeling makers and especially working so closely with women. And if we can elevate the, the feelings of women right now, we can also work, um, it's, it's directly related to this planet. Women in this planet are directly mm. uh, tied very deeply. So we need to raise that frequency and that healing of women. So create mm. good feelings. Yeah. Oh, hey, Carly. Hey, Puno. Did you get paid? Not today, but yes. <laughs> I've gotten paid before. Well, because I love creatives, we use Gusto. So yes. that's typically how we pay you. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. Well, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Gusto kind of changed my life. Puna, what made you choose Gusto before you even knew you needed a Gusto? Taxes. Tax, those damn taxes. Those damn taxes. Mm. Honestly, I had so many 1099s that I had to give out, you know, and it's January too. You're hungover Ugh. and you're like, yep. I don't want to do this. Math? Oh no. Mm -mm. Forms? Forms? PDFs? No. Numbers? Uh-uh. So someone told me about Gusto and then now all I do is I pay all contractors through Gusto and come January, it just sends out all the 1099s. I didn't even realize it was sent out. It sent me an email that was like, it's done, Buno. Ooh. Happy New Year. Oh, what a little gift. I know. So precious. Thank you. It's like the assistant you've like always wanted in your entire life. Oh. Like, oh. All right. You've convinced me, Puno. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's got to be a deal coming. 
There what, is. What's the deal? What's In the deal fa- with the deal? Well, here's the deal, Leo. Listeners get three months free. Oh, three whole months? Three months. That's Dang. three payrolls. That's actually six payrolls if you do bi-weekly. Ooh. I mean, yes, please. Where do I go? What do I do? Gusto.com backslash girlboss. Gusto.com backslash girlboss mm-hmm. for three mm-hmm. months free. Three months. Three months free. That's right. Dang. What a deal. You stay giving out the deals, man. I love it. So you were speaking a lot about um, purpose. At what point did you feel like Mara Hoffman, the company, needed to have an even bigger change? And what was the catalyst for that? Okay. Way back to the beginning, the company starts working, right? We're selling clothes. It's growing. It's happening. And it's just on this trajectory for growth. And all the department stores are buying it. People are excited. They want more. They want more. They want it for less money. Keep making it. How do you do this? And my awareness starts to shift probably 2013 around there, I start becoming a little bit more aware um, of just really the impact of the fashion industry. Also, just to keep in mind that it is like day and night, the difference of awareness, obviously, as things grow from when we began this journey to where we are now, the conversation around sustainability, the resources for it, Mm. um, just like the information sharing. So the very beginning kind of awareness phase for me, it just felt so kind of abstract in a way that I, you know, wasn't like, okay, how do I, what do I do about that? It was just more like, oh God, great. Wait, really? Oh no. And then that feeling just progressed and got more intensified and the awareness kept growing. And it's like that idea, like once you know something, you can't go back to unknowing that thing. Mm -hmm. And so like the idea of ignorance is bliss. It really isn't. But um, it keeps you sort of in an, a non-action place, um, which is not great. Discomfort is really the best thing because it gets you um, to change. And so the discomfort grew and I was really uncomfortable. And we get to 2015. My son is three. And I was like, one of those moments, like, let's close it down. I don't know how to change this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to, this is my legacy, like leaving him tons of stuff with like my name sewn in the back collar mm. to do what with, to bury what landfill, to deal with what, like this is, this is what I give you. This can't be it. And so I went to my, at the time she was my production manager and she was on maternity leave and I sat on her couch and I cried and I said, we should close the business because I don't know how we're going to do this. How do we make a better business? Like what? What sustainability? Like where? who? Huh? Huh? Mm. So this is 2015 and she was, uh, still is a, a Capricorn and very pragmatic and very thoughtful and I'm an Aries which is a little bit more um, impulsive and quick reactive and right now right now um, but with her Capricorn nature she said okay hold on we're not closing the business we're gonna think about what we can do and that's what we did and so uh, 2015 marked the beginning of this journey and Mm. it is that it is a continual journey with no end to it 
And the goals continue to move further along as you go because as you discover one aspect of change that you can make within a company, it's very shortly after that you realize that you need to do more and you need to do more and that just keeps moving along. So these past six years have been that. We've been really doing everything in our power at each turn to mm. figure out what it means to be a, a less harmful business, a business that cares about something and that can actually be authentically part of a change. It's a tricky one. It's when you keep continually having to re-ask yourself, like your check-in. You sort of have to do it with a business and check in its intentionality and its purpose again and again and again. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing that you you guys did? Did you have like a meeting with everyone and you're like, everybody like this is all on each of us or how did you approach it? The first thing was really about, I think, the two of us doing kind of an audit of our current systems mm. and like what were our current library of materials we were working from, who were our manufacturing partners and were we in alignment with their uh, individual practices and, you know, their ethics and so there was a lot of breaking up. There was a lot of asking different partners, either uh, fabric mills or actually cut and sew manufacturers to come along on the journey with us mm. and figuring out like how we could help them as well as ourselves through this so that we could all kind of grow into this next phase together. And, and through that audit, we saw that like some things were broken and some things were okay enough to keep and some things were, you know, it was like from urgent change to like, we're okay with this, we can like build up to that. And so mm -hmm. one of the first things was around shifting our swim fabric from a conventional spandex to using recycled polys that came from like pre and post consumer um, waste, plastic waste, mostly plastic mm. bottles. Mm -hmm. And we were able to shift that as a base and shift our printing techniques. So mm -hmm. it started with these more practical ideas and then it began to grow into all parts of the collection from every fiber we were using to the commitments we were making, the partnerships we were engaging ourselves with and to, you know, the hum human aspects of it. So it's been a lot. <laughs> Doing a lot. When you're talking to factories, like how did how do you bring up that conversation? Well, now it's really easy because now I think factories are hip to the idea that most people don't want to work with a company that's exploiting their people or releasing immense amounts of toxins into the environment or through mm. the water systems, into mm -hmm. their soils. I think that those places still do exist, absolutely. Um, but to be a little bit more relevant now is... Um, about really kind of getting your shit in order. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, it was just having those conversations. Okay, how do you deal with your waste management? Mm. What is everyone paid? Are they staying at the, you know, are there dormitories? What are their hours? What, um, what are your other systems? What chemicals are you using? Where are these, you know, it was just all of the whole stack of questions. And also for anyone who's listening who wants to get into the sort of nitty gritty aspects of this, go on our website. If you go under our um, our approach, 
it really breaks down all of it. And mm-hmm. it'll get into all of our fabrics that we're using, as well as our requirements from our manufacturing partners and what that looks like. If you want to go the extra mile and you're curious about that, go for it. Um, mm-hmm. But it was asking those questions. And some of them were uh, forthright about where they were coming in short, and some of them weren't. And so really a huge part of this is about being present anywhere you're manufacturing. You've got to go there. You have to be present um, and see any place for yourself before you agree to bring work there. Wow. So you would, you guys did a lot more. My team would. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, this past year we did not, but we were already, we weren't starting new manufacturing relationships. Mm. Thank goodness we had our relationships already established. And a lot of them we've worked with for many years. Mm -hmm. And so we know, um, yeah. So anyone that is just getting into, or is a new designer or works at, um, a company, you're saying right now that it's completely possible. It doesn't matter how established you are, you can do this. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think it's just how much effort you're willing to put into it yeah. and how sincere you are to it, because this isn't like the big money-making scheme of the century mm-hmm. is to become sustainable. It's not. Yeah. Um, so you're going to make a lot more money to do it cheap and shitty you know, mm-hmm. than you are. But the idea is really about helping sort of shift that whole paradigm to the way that we manufacture clothing as well as how people interact with their clothing and what decisions they make before purchasing something and really kind of working against this tide of excess fast fashion and accessibility and this mentality of just like kind of feeding a lack monster, you know, like there's mm-hmm. never enough, there's never enough. And we do that with a lot of things. We do it obviously with food, we can do it with drugs, we can do it with whatever, but we also do it with clothes where we're like, fill the hole, just and there's not enough, get enough, mm-hmm. you know. And we all slipped into this big kind of pit of, of lack and lack culture, like just not feeling we're ever filled because we're not ever filled because we're not Mm. healthy. That's where this whole like idea of this individual healing happens. Like when you heal and you become like in alignment, really truly with like your highest best self, you're in alignment with everything else and you need a lot less. You start Mm -hmm. desiring for a lot less. I mean, that's a hard thing to like put on the back of of a tag on your clothing, like heal so you don't want so much of me, you know, like it's it's a little bit loaded. But the idea around it is sort of planting seeds for people to think about it in a way of, well, what if I just spent a little bit more on one thing? And mm-hmm. I wore that thing all the time and I love that thing. And I shift my relationship and my conversation, like actually same thing, conversations with ourselves, having conversations with the material parts of our life, like yeah. conversation with a table, with a shirt, but it's a level of appreciation. And once we cultivate appreciation and gratitude for the things that we have, we stop longing so much for more things that we don't have and Mm. so the things we have become much more precious and special to us and so i guess that for me that's the big intention behind this is to like reshift our relationship to objects Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because you brought that into how you do seasons for example like the spring 2021 season you basically upcycled your own season. Well, I think this was another like deep silver lining that came out of the 
um, upheaval of 2020 was that if you were in fashion and you were running a brand, a company, most likely you were left with a pile of things because for us at least, as soon as everything hit, cancellations just started flying in from our wholesale partners of people saying, I can't do it. I can't. We had this order. I get it. Mm-hmm. And we placed this big order with you and you made all those things. And those factory workers put their hands on those machines and they did that work, but we can't pay you. Yeah. And these were big companies coming to a company my size and saying, sorry, we can't pay you. But it's still our responsibility then to pay the people that did this work, what are we supposed to then turn to the factory workers? I mean, a lot of people did do that. And, oh, sorry, not going to pay you. I mean, the uh, level of effect, this was a huge, huge situation, was how garment workers were treated during the, I mean, always, but it's particularly during the pandemic when these enormous companies just like walked away, walked away mm-hmm. from their commitments and didn't pay. But it was happening on all the levels. So we had bigger partners say, well, we're not taking our goods. So we got stuck with all of these things. And for us, it was like, how are we actually sitting down to contemplate designing a new collection, more things, like as if designing and making more things would get us out of the problem of all the things we already had. Oh, we just need more to get us out of our more problem. Mm -hmm. It made no sense. So we had to really kind of dig in and figure out, well, what do we do with what we have? And if we don't deal with what we have, who are we to ever speak to any of this work? Like you can't, you can't just keep pushing into more and not deal with the production issues. This is a huge part of the sustainability, like, conundrum you know it's overproduction and then Mm -hmm. dealing with what you have that is a huge part of it and then we'll get into it but the other huge part is like what do you do with it after like it's the the aspects of circularity but for us we were sitting on the end of okay we've got to do something with this so we decided to not produce the following collection we canceled it and we said well this is what we have and if you want to come on this ride with us and support us we're going to read story tell it Give it a new lens. This is what we do. We tell new stories around things and mm. engage people emotionally mm-hmm. and um, and then deal with, you know, what's sitting in our own backyard before creating more. So that's what we did. And it was awesome because it was a huge lesson in restraint and in following through and in figuring out solutions as opposed to just falling back on old broken systems. And again, like we are nowhere near like a fixed company or perfect or have figured this out. We just, sure. there's so much continually to do in it. But this past year was a huge shakeup for us. So that was one mm-hmm. of the parts. And then we decided that we were gonna really kind of restructure our business and get out of this old model that was so reliant on these wholesale partners that at any moment, could walk from you and leave mm-hmm. you in this situation that made no sense and get discounts if they even took it. It was just, it wasn't partnership. It wasn't fair. So that changed and we decided to restructure our own calendar, our internal mm-hmm. calendar, and that we would get out of this kind of archaic fashion way of shipping winter coats in the middle of the summer and tiny summer dresses in March. And how are we going to actually offer people the clothing they were looking to wear when they wanted um, to wear those clothing, not Mm -hmm. six months ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And this whole shift too is, is so interesting because I'm curious, how has your customers perceived it? And is it something that you feel validated by in terms of your decision? Definitely. It feels really good to have some 
you know, ownership of of our destiny in a sense of like that we're not reliant continually on these external sources that we create for us. And 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 an outcome of that has been, I feel, an up level of loyalty mm-hmm. from those that pay attention. And and then the stores, the partnerships that we did keep, I think it built in that much more trust in those relationships. And mm-hmm. it was like, okay, you treated us well, we will treat you well, like let's be in what it means to be in partnership with each other as opposed to this like really thing that is not partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my business is not uh, where it was before the pandemic, but I'm really happy with how we're shifting the balance of it. And our goal is really to shift towards is a more weighted side of direct to consumer, like that mm-hmm. we're selling through our own direct channels, our e-commerce site. We built a pop-up in Hudson, New York this year. We're gonna we're looking to open a New York City store and to really be able to control our outlets and, mm. and then have a few select wholesale partners that are awesome and that are like windows to the world and reach new customers and rebalancing. And so yeah. yeah, the numbers aren't back to where they were, but it's okay. Like it's restructured. Yeah. And like how do you see the future of this whole design because what I, what the trend I'm seeing right now is that you have more control of each touch point in a in a sense mm-hmm. like is it going to get to the point where we can do just in time manufacturing or it would be great we're trying to work that out ourselves and figure out how to sort of like move this timeline so that we can be more responsive to the market and to customers as opposed to guesswork yeah you know i think a lot of this overproduction problem comes with the fact that we've got to order things so much in advance to get the production done and then you're sitting on too much mm-hmm. so we're really working on that system of to figure out how we can just be able to be a little bit more customized, responsive, or build made-to-order systems, which is really, I think, a, a big future goal in sustainability because you're just making what is ordered as opposed to excess. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that comes with this whole like mindset of slowing down a little bit, mm. and um, yeah, under like we kind of evaluating quality and i don't know i think that it's a whole big mind shift that has to happen around everything but that being okay to wait a couple weeks for something because mm-hmm. you know we should be able to wait a couple weeks for something this episode was brought to you by hair story i've been trying out hair story's new wash it's a sulfate detergent and shampoo free hair cleanser. You're probably like, okay, wait, what is, what is it then? If it is not shampoo? I don't know, ever since I turned 30, my hair has become more dry and I just, I need it to be more hydrated. So Hair Story's new wash has all these natural ingredients that don't strip away your hair's protective barrier and only removes excess oil and dirt. Basically all the good stuff that keeps your hair hydrated, that's staying put. Namaste. Nah, I'ma stay on your head. The other thing about it is there's absolutely no suds. And Hair Story says that suds are like the number one sign your shampoo is bad. Essentially, if it foams, it strips. What I thought was really interesting when I tried it is that it replaces your shampoo and conditioner. I 
feel like I have so many different bottles in my shower and this is just one, all in one. I do have to say though that <laughs> there is an extra product that I liked a lot and it was the hair balm, which was essentially this air drying cream that it just kind of gives it more of a polished finish and that worked so perfectly. I just put a little bit in my palm and then just boop, 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 pat down on the, on the frizz. It was really great. Anyways, I really enjoyed my experience with it. So if you wanna try it out, check out HairStory at hairstory.com and you can use the promo code GIRLBOSS to get 15% off your first purchase. That is H-A-I-R-S-T-O-R-Y.com and use the code GIRLBOSS to get 15% off. A lot of these more indie designers are starting their own businesses on TikTok, on Instagram, and just communicating more about the process and educating consumers like you did on your about page. I love that approach. Whereas before I think fashion or any kind of manufacturing company was always a little bit guarded in terms of mm -hmm. um, who their resources are, like who they work with. But in this particular situation, for the better of the earth, you do have to share your resources. Yeah, that was a big shift for us is this like getting out of this idea that all this information was so proprietary and that mm -hmm. really the future is about collaboration and is about information sharing and this this idea that like, if you really want this, you want it for everyone else too. Yeah. Like there isn't a world in that you just want this, you know, you want to be the sustainable brand. If you really believe it, then you want everyone else to be it. Mm -hmm. We want us all, it's like, you know, all boats rise at once. Like we've got to kind of bring it up together mm -hmm. for it to work. What service is it if it's just like we, we get it right, mm -hmm. but nobody else gets it right. Or if somebody else there gets it right, you're like, well, how do we all get there? Like we're, we got to do this together. Yeah. I think that is probably a question you get all the time is what advice would you give fashion designers or or anyone who's trying to become do this more like what would should they do first? I would just be looking everywhere that I could learn. I think it's super cool that institutions now like this is part of the curriculum. So it was never part of my curriculum. Yeah. It didn't happen, you know, till sort of recently, I guess past 6 years, same time, maybe 6 years. Um, maybe longer. I think some more forward-thinking institutions had that built in or started those discussions, but more design-centered places. Mm -hmm. It's newer, but you know, for those who are took the student path or took the college path to lean into the institutions that they're coming from for resources and then to be looking for any kind of, there are so many events, there are so many speaking people that are putting their information out there. There are so many panels happening now. I mean, it's, you just sort of have to like tap in a little bit and look at who's doing the work that you're interested in and then follow their work and see then what that leads you to. And then I feel like there's a lot of open resources, like even um, Slow Factory is a great one and they have an open education program all around the aspects of sustainability from you know racial, social, um, and environmental justice mm. from that lens. Mm. And I would be interning places and I would be clarifying again my own 
sort of intention in being part of the industry mm -hmm. and why I wanted to be a part of it and where my strength was. Is it in innovation or is it really in the creativity of the design part of it? And what does that look like for me? Um, because it's very different than when I entered this world. You know, you have to think about so much more to it. And and if you're starting a brand, like you have to be thinking so much about innovative materials and how you're going to design out waste, mm -hmm. like from the get-go, as opposed to thinking about it as an afterthought and really understanding this, you know, circular economy and circular systems. Like this year we launched a new initiative, which is also on our site called Full Circle. Mm -hmm which is a take-back program where you can peer-to-peer -peer sell your Mara Hoffman pieces that you're not wearing anymore mm. and in turn have credit for something new on the site. But it's, you know, the, the big goal is keeping things out of the landfills for as long as possible and giving the longest extended life to anything that you are acquiring. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's taking ownership as the company that it isn't just our job to put it out there, but it's also our job to take it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So one question that we ask in every episode is, how are you looking at success today? And how has it changed? Um, I don't know when I really feel like, what does it mean for me to be successful? I can't untie that from happiness um like it's the same question i think to me is there a difference between uh, being successful and being happy like to me they are the same now mm -hmm. so i want to feel joy and happiness and i want to be a human being that can help others feel that also mm -hmm. and i want to be able to support webs of people including my immediate family to those that are touched by this work and that to me feels like success is being able to um, create purpose and placement for other human beings mm -hmm. um, success is feeling of um, non-restrictment and freedom to move through the world and in ease and grace um, and, and less in fear. Mm -hmm. And so that also comes back to the work that I'm doing and how do I do that and how do I create less fear and ease for myself and others? Um, there's a lot of things, yeah. but I think the big one is around that they aren't these two separate goalposts of, okay, well, here's success and then here's happiness right. and self self-understanding, self knowingness like that to me is success mm. is like to be able to uncover self-love a little bit more you know mm. like have a better knowing of that for myself mm, yeah I, I i love the self-knowing part of it because just that like infinite uncovering of who you are i think that that's mm -hmm. so it's endless cool. it's an endless <laughs> Yeah, and unlike unweaving, it's like the snake swelling its own tail. Like you're continually in that discovery. It's yeah. kind of beautiful. When I turned 30, 32 or whatever, I, I remember there was a point where I was like, what are these things about me that I think are so true? Let's debunk some of these. Because one of them was I hated cats forever. And then... <laughs> I was like, I was just like, wow, okay. I, and now you have a mild toleration for them? No, I love cats. I've you adopted, love them. I adopted okay. a Persian cat and uh, somehow got over my allergy. 
I, I think it's kind of I mean, nuts. mind over matter, right? Yeah. Like, like I, the thing. I used to like in the beginning when I would get frustrated with her because I was confused about how cats work, I would get hives. And then um, I would tell my friend was like, just tell you, tell yourself that you love cats and like scream it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I would do that. But then I did, I just kind of got over it and I don't get hives anymore. It's crazy. But then love that. started just thinking about, okay, what else? You know, like nothing is um, off the table. Like you can, you can rethink anything truly. Yeah. I forgot who this a beautiful, like, I like the analogy of imagining ourselves like these tape recordings and we're just going on the same like old mixtape, right? Yeah. It's just like perpetuating our existence of what we believe and what we feel and then our life turns out a certain way and it's like, oh, that's the same song. I'm listening to the same five songs. But then someone says, oh, you know what you can do is that you can re rewind and re-record mm. and put new songs on there. And then those songs are um, like your new life and they're as true as the old mixtape. Mm. So I, I think about that and, and yeah, I like rewriting new stories. Like I like your cat story. That's a nice, that's a, that's a really good re-recording. If you want to look cute and save Mother Earth at the same time, you got to check out Mara Hoffman's line at marahoffman.com and definitely check out that Sloan dress because it is very cute and crinkly and I love it because wrinkled is the look and I'm a wrinkled kind of girl. <laughs> I don't iron. And you can take in more of Mara's style and good vibes on her Instagram at marahoffman. And uh, the best way you can support Girl Boss Radio is by hitting that good old subscribe button. And what we love, love, love is a review. So write us. Tell us what you think. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio. And for that good old icing on top of the cake, we got 10% off using the code GIRLBOSS at ilovecreatives.com. We teach a lot of digital skills on there like Squarespace website design, video editing, Instagram. We've got a lot of stuff coming out, so check us out. Original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Juliana Clark, Imani Leonard, Christopher Olin, and Courtney Kosak. Engineering was done by Michael Castaneda. Our editorial director is Clemence. And special thanks to Nora Agency and Kaylee. Until next week, Puno out. See ya.